Matthew 22 for our text this morning. Matthew 22. We all love a good love story. (laughs) Well, okay, maybe not. My wife and daughters were at home watching an old BBC presentation of uh, Pride and Prejudice. Has anybody ever seen that or read the read the book? Okay. So, you know, I don't know how long. It goes on like six, ten hours. I don't know. It's like forever. But um, I walked in and, you know, it, it's sort of fun to make fun of it. This is, you know, there's, there's sense in something and there's pride and sensibility and then there's, you know, there's eight or ten of them all kind of the same. They just all run together. But of course, as I sat there and you know, watched from the background, I couldn't help but my heart was moved a little bit at, you know, a display of true love. There's, it's not for nothing that people cry when they come to weddings that were drawn to beautiful, selfless love stories. There's just something good and right about that. And I say that because that's exactly the way God made us. Because that appreciation of a good love story and that joy at seeing a happy marriage is created by God in the very beginning, fashioned by God to be a kind of window in the world through which we can get a glimpse of the transcendent. The Bible teaches us that God created marriage so that we could know something of the kind of love relationship that God is determined to enter into with His people. That they would love Him like that and submit to Him like that because He has selflessly laid down His life for them and drawn them to Him with cords of love. Marriage points us to that. So every time you go to a wedding, I hope it will become precious to you as you see through it to something even more glorious beyond. All through the Old Testament, the Lord used the imagery of, of, of a marriage, of a wedding, to illustrate His love for His people. And you have a number of passages that go that direction. We read some of them earlier this morning. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is meant to be a mystery, uh, a sort of veiled revelation of the greatness of the love of God. Our Lord adopts this same kind of imagery of a marriage, of a wedding, as He tells this next story, this next parable. Matthew chapter 22, the first paragraph here, verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, 
Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the third parable now that Jesus has told. You can see them right in a row here, beginning in chapter 21, verse 28, and then uh, verse 33, and now here, three parables, all on this one theme, that is, God's judgment upon unbelief. Each of the stories picks up some strand of Old Testament imagery for the people of Israel. Israel is God's son, and so he tells a story about two sons. Israel is God's vineyard, and so he tells a story about a vineyard. Israel is God's bride, and so he tells a story of a wedding. This parable is set at a wedding. And once again, this parable is also essentially allegorical. Remember that from last week? An allegory is like a more detailed parable. A parable in which it's not just simply one main point, but in which each of the major characters or figures corresponds to something else in reality. And so Jesus tells a parable that is essentially an allegory. And uh, so once again, it's helpful to think about the story in terms of the main characters, starting with, well, where the story starts. There was once upon a time a great, what? A great king. This king most naturally must be who? Must be God. Especially, I think, in light of the previous two parables, where it's clear that God is the father in the first story, and God is the master the vineyard owner in the second story. So now here he is, the king of his kingdom. And of course, that's the language Jesus has been using all along. This is God. Uh, And God, the king, I should say, the king in the story, he has a son. And that son will be the groom. And Jesus has already used language like this, so we don't have to wonder, though I think it's pretty apparent to all of us who know the word. Uh, Back in chapter 9, 
remember the disciples of John came to Jesus and they said, why do, why do we fast and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast? And remember what Jesus said, how can they fast as long as the bridegroom is here? The bridal party doesn't fast as long as the bridegroom is there. The day will come when I'll go away and then they'll fast. So he's already begun to identify himself as the groom. Uh, and that imagery carries through, I think, in this story. And then that brings us then to the guests. Jesus had used that terminology of his disciples. How can the bridal party guests, how can the guests mourn or fast when the groom is here? Um, So I should say it this way. While God's people as a whole are pictured by the bride... I think the wedding guests or the wedding party pictures the people of God more individually. So the imagery is is a little malleable, but that's the idea. These These are the people of God, those who are invited to the wedding. And of course, it is usually the extended family that makes up the wedding party and are the first to be invited to the wedding. And then the guests are invited, not just to a wedding, but to what every good wedding needs, which is a feast. (laughs) Um, And of course, in those days, that feast might last for several days. You would come, and you would come, and you would come again, and it was a multi-day celebration, perhaps. uh, This feast is representative of communion with God. Fellowship with God at a deep level. The kind of fellowship that we even talk about sometimes when we say that two people are breaking bread together. They're communing together. They're opening up not just their home and sharing a meal, but they're sharing their souls, their hearts, their lives together. Jesus talked earlier about sitting down at the table, so to speak, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a an image for coming into the kingdom of God. You're, you're not just coming in as God's subjects, you're coming down to sit at table with God, to be in communion with God, to be united to His life and His purposes. This is an amazing thing. This feast that the Lord has provided for His people. What does the Scripture tell us? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That kind of communion with God is experiential. In other words, it's not just something that you learn about in your mind. I mean, true communion, union with God through Christ is not something that you can write down merely on a book. It's something that you experience um, in the course of your life. You, you sit down and you, you eat with the Lord. You have such a communion with God through His Word, yes, but, but not merely by understanding the meanings of the different words and the syntax, but coming into a relationship with the God who speaks those words into your life. That's what I'm talking about. It is right and good that the Lord talks about 
our relationship with Him in terms of sitting down to commune together. True communion cannot be described as much as it can be experienced. And it's so much my desire that I would experience communion with God to a greater degree and that you would. And I've used this illustration I know plenty of times before, but it's like when you finally find the restaurant that cooks the best steak in town. And you talk about the glories of that steak and how tender it is and how the fat is marbled just so and how it's cooked just to perfection. And you can describe the sizzle on the plate and the sound and the smell. But there's really, there's really only one way to experience it, and that is to sit down and partake. And I don't know how many people come to church and, and know that God is good and know that He's a Savior. But oh, I want to see us all come to, to, to taste and to see how good the Lord is, to experience His goodness and His salvation. We sing how sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Here all affection of our God with soft compassion rolls. Here peace and pardon bought with blood is food for dying souls. If you don't know communion with God, then I say to you with the words of the Lord Jesus, there is food to eat that you don't know anything about. There is a bread that truly satisfies and water of life that truly quenches the thirst. And... I tell you today, both the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, come to the fountain of living waters. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and drink. Come buy wine and food without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Incline your ear and come and satisfy your soul with rich food. What keeps you away from the Lord today? From communion with Him? Your soul, maybe some of you, you come today and your soul is is on the brink of starving. The Lord has set a banquet table. And the banquet is Himself. And He says, come to Me. Commune with Me. Know My salvation. Humble yourself before Me. Lay all your sins out and find the mercies that I will pour out on your soul. Lay out before Me all of your troubles and all of your heartaches. And come and feast on me and find that I will sustain you through anything. This is a great banquet that the Lord has laid out, even in the presence of our enemies. 
there He spreads a table before you. He says, come, my child, sit down and commune with me. And fellowship with me. Come and know me. This is the feast set by the King wherein we are wed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the servants. Who are these servants? I think they can be deduced from the way the story flows, right? The servants are the people who issue the invitations to people to come to the wedding, to come into the kingdom. So these would be the prophets, the preachers of the Word of God, those who proclaimed the kingdom and invited people to come. They correspond, of course, to the servants in the last parable who went out into the uh, vineyard to bring in the Lord's harvest. And in that vein, as one of the Lord's humble servants, I implore you to come. I tell you in Jesus' name to come. You draw near to the Lord and find in Him everything that you need. Well, according to Jewish custom, this probably wouldn't have been the first time these people ever heard about a wedding. These people, the guests, would have been people who were invited to come first. Um, And they would have already agreed to come uh, to the wedding. And now the servants were sent to essentially to summon them, to say, all right, now it's time. It's time to come. And yet, the people who hear them say, no, we're too busy, got things going on. In other words, they're a lot like the, the, uh, the workers, the, the vineyard workers in the second story. Uh, or or, the, or, the, um, or to, to be even more clear, like the uh, son in the first story who said at first, oh, I will go. And then it was time to go into the harvest field, and he did not. So when these servants um, come to the people who were invited and summon them to the feast, uh, the people won't come. And so once again, Jesus says the Lord sends them what? Other servants. Just like the last parable, where after the first wave of servants, He sends more servants. This is the mercy of God in pleading for sinners that they would come to Him. But one by one, the people in Jesus' story, they make their excuses. I've got too busy things to do. They go off to their own distractions. One guy's got his farm to keep up. I can't possibly come to the wedding. Too many cows to milk. Another says, well, I've got my business to run. I can't let it fall behind. I haven't set anything aside. This great feast doesn't seem that significant to them. I'm sure they're appreciative for being invited But in the scheme of things, it's not as important as their day-to-day life and the distractions that um, are uh, are gaining their attention. And of course, there are so many distractions in our world, aren't there? Distractions everywhere we turn. So many distractions that the devil brings into our lives. You know why? So that we don't feel that gnawing spiritual hunger in our souls. If the devil can throw you 
a distraction here and a distraction there and a distraction here. And you're consumed with all of those distractions. Before long, I, I, I say a person can live half his life and hardly have given thought to that hunger in his soul that can only be satisfied by coming to sit down at table with the Lord God. So the devil distracts these people and they go their way. And just like in the last parable where the tenant farmers seized hold, so here the servants are seized, some are abused, and some are even killed which seems pretty extreme in the storyline, right? <laughs> a king sends his servants and they, they beat up the servants just because they invited them to go to a wedding. They kill them. But, of course, it reflects a reality. And that's why it's put into the story. The story is hyperbole to show you what happens in reality. As the people of Israel have had preacher after preacher, prophet after prophet, but the people that Jesus is talking to, they had heard the word of God, they had heard the warnings, and yet they had rejected and rejected and rejected the message of God that came through His preachers. And boy, it is a, a serious thing to reject the word of God, to harden your heart against the proclamation of the word of God through His servants. If this is in fact the Word of God, you'd better open your heart to it. And these people went their way. They took those servants and they killed them. They rejected them. And so, verse 7, the king became very angry, and rightly so. Right? And what did he say? I will send my troops and I will destroy those murderers and I will burn their city. Which again, doesn't seem exactly to fit in the story? Are all of the guests from the same city? Or is this the king's city? Is this, it, it, the point is not the story. The point is what's happening in reality. And, of course, the city of Jerusalem was the epicenter of those who rejected God among the Jewish people. So the Lord Jesus would stand over Jerusalem in just two more chapters in chapter 23 and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. And that city, the king said, he would destroy. He would send his troops. These troops in reality were the troops of none other than the Roman Empire. Which is strange that the king, in the story anyway, the king would call these troops his troops. <laughs> the Roman legions are the troops of God. But I tell you, in the hand of God, <laughs> any means he can bring to his desired ends. And he uses the wicked nations like the empire of Rome or like Assyria or Babylon in the Old Testament that the Lord spoke of as His troops as well to bring His troops against the people. And of course, that's exactly what did happen. The Lord pronounced this great judgment that in 70 AD would fall upon the city of Jerusalem. 
as the Roman legions marched on that city. Listen to this. The historian Josephus records it this way. He says, that building, speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, that building, however, God long ago had sentenced to the flames. (laughs) What's he talking about? This is the Lord Jesus saying that the king will send his uh, troops and burn the city. Josephus says, the Lord God long ago sentenced that city to the flames, but now in the revolution of the time periods, that fateful day had arrived. The tenth of the month of Lois, the very day on which it had been burned previously by the king of Babylon. One of the soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor filled with the horror or of dread of such an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and hoisted by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window. When the flame arose, he says, a scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews. Now that the object which before they had guarded so closely was going to ruin. The emperor ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be razed to the grounds, except only the highest towers and that part of the wall that enclosed the city on the west. The allegory would become a reality within the very generation of those people listening to Jesus' words. And here was their warning. And then in verses 8 and 9, we read that the king sent his servants out after the rejection twice of the people that they had first invited. Now he goes out and he sends his servants to find strangers, just anybody to fill up the king's table. He says, go out into the highways, go out onto the street corners, just go find the down and outers, the common sinners, the poor, the humble." Even the Gentiles. And I tell you, it's people with no standing on their own who feel that they can't possibly refuse the king. And those are the people who came. But notice in verse 9, the command that the king gives to his servants. He says, invite to the wedding feast, what? As many as you can find, just go out, find people wherever they are and bring them in and sit them down in the house. This is the free offer of the gospel, that the gospel should be widely disseminated, that the gospel should be preached to all men everywhere. I think some people... I've had the false idea that, well, if God chooses who's going to be saved, then He doesn't need us to make it known, right? If He's going to save them, He's going to save them. Or they say, well, we don't know who God has chosen, who are the elect, and so we can't truly invite everyone. Or they say, we need to look for the work of grace the signs of sorrow for sin in the life of somebody before we dare preach to them the gospel. No. No, preach to them the good news for repentant people 
while you command them to repent in the name of the king. That's the right way. You preach to them the good news that any repentant person would be saved, and you command them to repent. We heard sung this morning, you come, I come just as I, what? Just as I am. And yet I come broken to be what? To be mended. I come wounded to be healed. There are a few what some might call hyper-Calvinists out there who might say things like this. But mostly, I think, it's just a caricature of Reformed theology by those who reject it. You've heard of the Canons of Dort? This is uh, pronouncements that were made by a church gathering um, in, uh, of the Reformed churches in Holland. And it's, the, it's sort of the famous gathering from which comes the statements that have been formulated in the little acrostic tulip by which some people know Reformed theology. Well, here's something that the canons of Dort said. It is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people. (laughs) Another Reformed minister and professor said, We do not inquire into the hidden decree. That's none of our business. We offer Christ sincerely, seriously, promiscuously even, to all and to all sorts of persons. We invite them, all of them. We call them, we urge them to acknowledge the greatness of their sin and misery and to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Charles Spurgeon, most of us know that name, the great London preacher, he preached this way, quote, he said, it is no novelty that I am preaching, no new doctrine. I love to proclaim these strong old doctrines that are called by nickname Calvinism but which are surely and verily the revealed truth of God as it is in Christ Jesus. He says, I boldly avow and am unchanged as to the doctrines I have preached. I preach Calvinism as high, as stern, and as sound as ever, but I do feel and have always and always did feel an, extreme, an anxiety to invite sinners to Christ. How wide is the invitation? I would say even now to the dry bones of the valley, as Ezekiel did, ye dry bones, live. Doing it is an act of faith, not faith in the power of those that hear to obey the command, but faith in the power of God who gives the command to give strength also to those addressed that they may be constrained to obey them. May we never shrink back from inviting as many to the feast as we may find. This is the command of the king. And verse 10, those servants went out and they went into the roads and they gathered all whom they found and they brought them in and sat them down at the master's table so that the table would be filled. And even among those who came, though, 
Notice that he says they were both what? Good and bad. And that brings us then finally, or I think finally, just about finally, to the guest, the last guest that's mentioned, the one without a wedding garment. And the king confronts this guy, why aren't you wearing a wedding garment? And the man says, nothing. He stands there with no excuse. And so he is bound and cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth which is a reminder to us of the awfulness of hell, that place of sadness and pain and anger. And God, be merciful to us that we not be cast into the lake of fire. This man is cast out because he doesn't have the garment. And so then the question is, well, where, where, where is he supposed to get a garment? Why is he criticized for not having one? The story doesn't really tell you. But I think most have surmised that the garment must have been provided by the king himself. And so when the man is confronted, he doesn't have any excuse. He doesn't say, well, I don't have any nice clothes. He doesn't have anything to offer. He shows up to the feast in his ordinary clothes, just just as I am, he says, right? Now that's the mantra, the mantra of the unconverted so-called Christian. I've come. The, the invitation is wide, it's broad. Just come. You come as you are. God accepts us like we are, right? That's this what this man says. He comes in his ordinary clothing, his dirty clothes, an insult to the king who called him. And there are people who presume upon the free offer. Well, God loves me. He accepts me. This person wants the benefits of the banquet, but with no awe for the king, no repentance, and no righteousness. This clothing, then, is the righteousness of Christ that is both imputed to us That is, we are clothed in Christ so that it's actually His righteousness that becomes our own by the grace of God and by God's attributing it to us. And it is the imparted righteousness of Christ that is manifest in us progressively through the control of Christ's Spirit. And both are given to us by the grace of God. Scripture teaches us that we all have become like one who is unclean and all of our quote-unquote righteous deeds that we are proud of in ourselves, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like filthy rags. But by grace we can say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So we read in the New Testament, whoever has been baptized into Christ has what? 
put on Christ. And so we're told in your actual experience of Christ to put off the old flesh and to put on your new self, made new in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and the renewal of your mind by His Word. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and don't make provision for your old flesh any longer. And so we rejoice and exult and give God glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready for it was granted to her to clothe herself. What, was it, what does it say? It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This clothing, I tell you again, is the righteousness of none other than Jesus Christ Himself. And those who are in Christ are so clothed with Christ that they stand covered in His righteousness and are filled with His righteous Spirit who works out His righteousness in them. Beware all who say, I am rich and well clothed, knowing not that you are poor and naked and destitute. Return to Christ, run to Jesus, he says, and buy yourself garments that are pure white, the kind of garments that you can buy only without money and without price. Someone says, I don't know if I can reach heaven. I don't know if I can be good enough. I don't know if my righteousness can reach up to the, to the level it needs to be. I don't know if I have enough money to buy my way. And someone says to him, brother, your problem is not that you can't get high enough in your price. The problem is you haven't gotten low enough. You haven't recognized that there is nothing at all that you can bring. There is nothing you have to bring. That all of your fleshly righteousness is... Is, is filthy rags. And if you don't have the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone for you and in you, then you have no hope of any righteousness before the Almighty God. So you must be clothed with Christ. And this story is such a beautiful picture of that, but it also illustrates this sobering truth, that there is more than one way to reject God's call there's the obvious way, like, like the first people. When the summons comes, they say, no way, we don't want any part of that. We've got other things to do. We're too busy. There's something much more, um, much more insidious. And that is that here's a man who comes along, who seems to respond to the invitation, Right? And he's in the crowd. He's there along with all of the other people rejoicing at the wedding of the king. But he's not truly a part of what's going on. Which is to remind us that there are some bad mixed in with the good, like Jesus says. It's not in the same proportion as the first group. There's one man that first group rejected by and large, here is one, but he is one. I thank God that the New Testament church, faithful churches of Jesus Christ, are not just exactly the same as Israel and that mixed multitude that it was. 
And yet there is here a real warning for us that there may be one. One who sits with us every week and yet is found to be outside of the kingdom, not dressed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The bottom line of the story is in verse 14. And he says there, For many are called, but few are chosen. And of course, this, is the, this divine choice is the choice of God's election, whereby we come to be numbered among that chosen people who belong to God. Now, other passages use calling and election almost synonymously, don't they? Like you're called to God, you are, as it were, you know, you're one of the elect. So 2 Peter chapter 1, the Bible tells us to confirm or to make sure of your calling and election, right? In some passages, the idea of God, of this calling is just as certain and effective as election. So Romans chapter 8, all those whom God foreknew, He predestined, and all those whom He predestined, He what? Called. And those whom He called, He justified, and eventually He glorified. Right? So there's a certainty about that, calling. And yet here, calling seems to be distinguished from election or God's choosing. And so we speak of a, a general call and a particular call. Or sometimes we say an external call, whereby the gospel is pronounced to all who, who will hear. And there is that internal call of the Holy Spirit in the heart. There is that call that is often resisted. And then there is that call that is always effective. There is that call that should be heralded indiscriminately. And then there is that call that is to be acknowledged humbly and gratefully. Spurgeon said, the general call of the gospel is like sheet lightning. You ever been out on a dark and stormy night and uh, the lightning just lights up the entire sky? It's like the whole clouds all connected together just light up in one big... You don't see any lightning bolt, but you know it's out there and you just see it flash across the sky and everybody in the whole town can see it. You didn't have to say, hey, did you see the lightning? Everybody saw it because you can't miss it. And yet no one is ever struck by that kind of lightning. Then there is the internal effectual call that is like bolt lightning. Have you seen that? That just comes straight out of the sky and you, you think you, you might have seen it hit the ground. It comes to a very narrow and specific and targeted place and its effect is unmistakable. It's like that arrow that was shot at random in the Old Testament story and happened by the providence of God, to find its place right between the armor plates and the chest of King Ahab. And if you're a Christian, you know that kind of piercing arrow of sovereign grace that at some point came right down into your soul and pierced right to the very heart of your life, right to your very soul and spirit and just cut you open. And you knew in that moment 
that you could not resist the mercies of God and you would not. You would be saved. And in God's grace, you were. That's the kind of call, the choosing, the graciousness of God in this internal, effective call. If you find yourself in the kingdom of heaven, then you, my friend, were one of the chosen. And if anyone, anywhere, would be willing to repent and bow his knee to Christ and to look to Christ alone for his righteousness and his holy dress, then it would be apparent that he was elect. Not only are we generally called to the gospel, but friends, if you're a true Christian, you have been chosen and kept by the sovereign grace of God. So we are described in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. The Bible says, He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful by the mercy of God. What would it be like if the King of kings showed up today in our midst? Would He find one of this hundred or hundred and fifty people, would he find one in a group like this who would not be dressed in the righteousness of Christ? While all the rest went into the kingdom, while your family, your friends, your church members went into the kingdom, would there be one who would be shut out. Listen, friends, the Bible says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? May it not be. You say, well, I'm not sure. I know I'm probably speaking to some people that say, I don't know. I think I belong to the Lord. But sometimes I wonder, I doubt. And I understand that. And I was once in your place. And I will tell you this, that the Lord is merciful to all who will call on Him. If you come to Him, He will most certainly not cast you out. And when you get to have that assurance that He has saved you, you should fall on your knees and say, Thank you, Lord, for your electing grace that sought me out when I was foolish and hard-hearted proud, and you broke me, you brought me to yourself. All glory to God. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, please strengthen the hearts of those who are truly yours. Give them a growing evidence and a growing assurance that they belong to you. I pray you'd fill them with your spirit and cry out through them, Abba, Father. Show them by the effects of your work in their lives. They are truly yours. And Lord, for any of us who may be in danger in our souls, I pray that you would come with mercy and grace and undermine any false assurances so that we may be rightly awakened to our need. We pray it in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen. As pianist plays, let's take a moment to examine our hearts. Once again, ask the Lord to search you. Where is your hope? Is it in the Lord Jesus Christ alone? Or is your hope in people thinking that you're a pretty good person? Are there effects of grace in your life? The very first effect is, I'm holding on to Jesus alone. I have no hope, no plea, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's the first effect. If you see that, then praise God. And then what about the ongoing effects of the Spirit in your life? You see those too? Say, not as much as I want. Okay, join the club. But if you can say about yourself, well, I'm not what I used to be. And praise God, I want to be more than I am. And you should give God humble thanks right now.